On October the 1st, 2019, protesters took to the streets of Iraq, demonstrating across the central and southern provinces. What began as peaceful civil protests against unemployment, government corruption, and poor public services, such as electricity and clean water, spiraled swiftly into violence as the government's brutal response with tear gas and live ammunition killed two people and injured hundreds. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Suhail Akram, and this week we're looking at one year since the popular anti-establishment protests started in Iraq and the impact they have had on the country. When Iraqis first took to the streets on October the 1st, 2019, their anger was born out of years of frustration. Let's rewind to 2003. The US invasion not only undermined any semblance of security in Iraq, it created a corrupt and sectarian political class that has left the country's economy in ruins. According to the World Bank, Iraq has the fourth largest pruned reserves of oil. But in 2014, more than 22% of its population of 40 million people were living on less than $2 a day. Last year, protesters took to the streets to demand their fair share of the country's oil revenues, an end to the rampant corruption that led to underfunded public services, high unemployment and a stagnant economy. On the first day of protests, Iraq's then Prime Minister, Adil Abdul Mahdi, called for restraint and respecting the law. After the security forces opened fire and used tear gas, killing at least two people and wounding more than 200. A day after the protests began, the government took 70% of the country offline and blocked social media in an attempt to quell protests sweeping major cities. But the protests continued. By October 5th, The death toll had soared to at least 70 as clashes between protesters and police intensified. The protests and the subsequent deaths were seen as the first major challenge to Prime Minister Abdul Adil Mahdi's fragile government nearly a year after he came to power. After the first wave of protests ended on October 9th, Prime Minister Mahdi promised to reshuffle his cabinet and work on reducing unemployment. The protests had stopped to make way for the holy pilgrimage of Arba'in, one of the holiest events of the Shia calendar. But a lack of progress during this hiatus and Mahdi's refusal to call an early election meant the demonstrations erupted again on October the 25th. By the time he stepped down on November 30th, more than 250 people had been killed in clashes with security forces. But Mahdi's departure meant nothing to protesters. This was not what they were fighting for. We spoke to Rinald Mansour, senior research fellow in the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, about how the protests have changed since they first began. But I think what separates these protests in the last year from previous protests is the demands are stronger. The demands are not just only for jobs and electricity and water, because you've seen those for a long time in Iraq after 2003, but they call it a revolution. I mean, they're, they're, they're calling for the end of a political system, this political system of post-2003 that was put to them, enforced on them by foreign actors as well as Iraqi elite working with uh, the, the U.S.-led coalition. They're against the system. The demands have become less specific as such, um, less about just water, electricity, and much more, I think, 
understanding, I think the best way to understand these protests is as a societal backlash to 18 years of misgovernance and traumatic governance on a young generation that really sees a bleak future. Between February and March 2020, Iraq had two temporary prime ministers. First, a former communication minister, Muhammad Al-Labi, who did not receive a vote of confidence in parliament, followed by Adnan Al-Zarfi, who withdrew his candidacy, again failing to secure enough support to form a government. President Barham Saleh next turned to the country's intelligence chief, Mustafa Al-Qadimi, to be Iraq's new prime minister-designate, the third within 10 weeks. Qadimi was voted in on the 7th of May 2020. Here is Rinad Mansour again. Critically for this prime minister is he's facing two camps. You have the protesters on one side and you have the sort of political parties on the other side. And he's trying to make both sides happy. So while he he talks about reform and he talks about change and and, and uses the language the protesters have been using, he also still allows the political parties to generate the rents the way they do, to to continue the corrupt practices that they do. He doesn't want to go after the major political parties as such. He still needs them in parliament and in politics. So in the end, what he has is one foot in the elite camp and one foot in the protest camp, but that makes him kind of uh, rejected in a way by both. So because both sides then view him uh, not 100% in a trustworthy manner. And so his approach um, would very likely mean that he will be rejected by both sides in the next election and the next government formation process. This sentiment is echoed by Inas Jabbar, human rights activist from Baghdad, who has been taking part in the demonstrations. We were able to make an impact, like the nomination of Al-Qadini, who does not belong to a specific political bloc. We managed to compel them to look for a candidate to take on the prime minister role. At the same time, Al-Qadini and Al-Qadini's cabinet did not get rid of the quotas and sectarianism. In reality, the radical and real change we were hoping for has not happened. And we know that Al-Qadimi's cabinet does not have the magic wand because of successive corrupt governments, of the militias and parties in the country. So definitely we will not be able to live a prosperous life in a year or two. But the least we were hoping for was to condemn those who killed the demonstrators. The killings Inas mentions are assassinations targeting civil rights activists in the country. In July, Iraqi security expert Husham al-Hashimi, an outspoken critic of Iran-backed militias in Iraq, was killed outside his home in Baghdad. His life had been threatened by the militias. On August 14th, 30-year-old Tahseen Osama was shot dead while traveling in a car. Just five days later, 29-year-old Riham Yaqub, a doctor and human rights activist, was shot dead. According to Iraq's Independent High Commission for Human Rights, there were six assassination attempts targeting activists in the month of August 2020 alone. The commission also recorded 16 attempted killings since October 2019. Protesters say there's a constant fear lurking in the streets of Iraq of being assassinated. In the month of July and August, angry Iraqis again took to the streets protesting the killing of civil rights activists and journalists. The assassinations of Tahseen Osama, Reham Yaqub and Husham al-Hashimi had sent shock waves through the country. Prime Minister Mustafa al-Qadmi tweeted after the assassinations, collusion with the killers is unacceptable and we'll do whatever is necessary.
When Prime Minister Kadimi spoke to the National in August, he was confident that those responsible would be caught, but that it would take time. But this commitment comes after government forces have killed hundreds of demonstrators in clashes this past year. Here is Renaud again. The Iraqi state has proven capable and willing to kill uh, protesters, to injure protesters, as well as to uh, jail um, and and basically intimidate through the use of coercion protesters. So it's been a very rocky battle for them. Um, you have an elite in Baghdad who may be more sympathetic to protesters. However, they still haven't been able to understand how to engage with protesters, how to really address the fundamental uh, roots that started uh, with these protests in October of last year. Aside from the clashes between government forces and protesters, there has been a global wrangle for influence in the country. The activists who were targeted in assassinations had been previously mentioned by Iranian media as being part of an American-influenced anti-Iranian networks. Riham Yaqub, for example, the doctor who was killed in August 2020, said she had received threats from Iranian-backed militias in 2018. The demonstrations in Iraq are also against Iranian influence on their political system that awards positions to political parties based on ethnic and sectarian identity. It is a process, they say, that has been encouraging favoritism and corruption in Iraqi politics for years, dividing the country in the middle with a corrupt ruling elite on one hand and ordinary suffering Iraqis on the other. Since the US invasion, Iran's influence over Iraq's internal affairs has grown steadily. Rinald explains the careful balance it keeps. I think it's clear that Iran's role has grown since 2003. A lot of Iran's policymakers remember the brutal eight-year war between Iraq and Iran in the 1980s. So Iran's goal has always been to make sure that Iraq uh, is never that strong to pose a neighboring threat. But at the same time, I think Iran has also learned, particularly in 2014 when ISIS came to its doorsteps in Iraq, that Iraq cannot be too weak to allow security threats to, to, to emerge. So it needs to find the balance of an Iraq that's, that's not too strong and not too weak. At the same time, to do so, what Iran does is it, it engages the Iraqi state as almost a network. So it has relationships across the political parties. Since the US invasion of Iraq, the Quds Force, part of the Iranian Islamic Revolution Guard Corps, has been growing its influence in Iraq. In April 2019, the U.S. branded both organizations foreign terrorist organizations. In January 2020, the U.S. assassinated its leader, General Qasem Soleimani. President Donald Trump recently said the U.S. troops would withdraw from Iraq, leading to concern that the void would be filled by Iranian influence. At the end of September, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo threatened to close the U.S. embassy in Iraq if the country's security forces were unable to secure the Green Zone, a heavily fortified area in the center of Baghdad, and prevent attacks on the U.S. embassy. Washington blames Iran-backed militias for firing rockets at its embassy on a nearly weekly basis for months and for shelling Iraqi bases housing international troops, including many U.S. soldiers. Shutting down the embassy would secure American diplomats but could jeopardize efforts to prevent Iraq becoming too reliant on Iran. In the past, the U.S. has been a huge player in Iraq. As Renaud explains, it still is. The U.S. has obviously been one of the most, uh, well, for a long time, the U.S. was the most powerful, you know, actor 
after in Iraq. I mean, the U.S. was the sovereign of Iraq for several years. The U.S. is responsible for designing, partly uh, with Iraqi allies, the system of governance that the protesters are rejecting. So yes, the U.S. does have a role. The U.S. is still militarily intervening in Iraq. The U.S. is still uh, striking not just at ISIS, but also, of course, uh, at the beginning of this year against Iraq, you know, Qasem Soleimani, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, and other militia leaders. So, of course, the U.S. has a role in this. And the U.S. is a target as well, of course, from Iranian groups inside Iraq. So the U.S. is very much at the heart of conflict in Iraq. It's tried for many years. Its, its politicians have tried. Uh, its officials have tried to fix the Iraqi state. But I think fundamentally at the core has been an inability to understand what the Iraqi state is and how it functions. But also I think it particularly in the last administration, viewing Iraq through the lens of Iran has destabilized Iraq to some extent more than it was before. The influence of Iran is part of a broader issue of sectarianism in Iraq. The population of Iraq is approximately 65% Shia and 35% Sunni, with 15 to 20% Kurdish population. After the fall of Saddam Hussein in 2003 following the US invasion, the Iraqi parliament was built along sectarian lines, giving representation to these groups. Sectarian violence marred much of the time between 2006 and 2009 in the country. But the protests have also been against this sectarianism. The majority of the Iraqi population is under the age of 25. The demonstrators want to see a rise in Iraqi unity and a move away from the sectarian politics. One of the chants from the protests included, Not Sunni, not Shia, we reject your sectarianism. The core issue that led the people to protest are still unresolved. And the issue of the coronavirus pandemic has meant that not only are Iraq's economic situation, public services and jobs affected, but so is people's ability to protest. However, Renat doesn't think the pandemic will dampen the protests. The protests go in waves, right? It's not like you could have mass mobilization for months and months and months and months. Um, what I would be looking at instead are, have the roots been addressed? Because if the roots of, of why Iraqis are going to the streets haven't been addressed, they're going to come back. And they're going to come back and back. And already when I speak to protesters, there is all these plans to mark the one-year anniversary by mobilizing quite in, in a mass way. So the pandemic has, in terms of uh, meth- like in terms of operations, been hampered to them. But again, it's, it's, I, w- I, I view this as a much more long-term problem. Until the problems have been addressed, the protesters intend on continuing. And with poverty rates at just over 30%, according to UNICEF, Iraq needs a drastic change. But are protests the answer? After a year of demonstrations, have Iraqis achieved anything? I would say that this is more of a process and it's going to be a very bloody process and there's going to be a lot of competition in this process. But we shouldn't be too quick to rush to, rush to judge, oh, it's a failure because their demands uh, haven't been met yet. But and to, to be clear, their demands have not been met. Um, that elite elite pack, that elite mold of, of post-2003 parties and political leaders continue to govern, and they've proven quite capable of managing existential threats like protests because they come together in, in, in a way to sideline uh, such threats to them. If the political elite is capable of managing the protests, can they also hold on to their wealth and power until this blows over? Enos doesn't think that's a viable option. 
In this bad situation in Iraq, we have suffered bitterly. We have seen how bad the health sector is and how hard it is to deal with the crisis in addition to the collapse of the economy and the people who had to find a job. According to a report by the planning ministry, the rate of theft has increased during the coronavirus pandemic. This means that the economic crisis in Iraq is starting to worsen. All these crises certainly lead to an uprising or future ones, perhaps ones that are stronger than October's, particularly today as the young generation know what intifada is and believe in the methodology of a protest. On behalf of the group of protesters I belong to, and we are truly bonded when we meet for discussions, we believe that as long as there are existing crises, revolutions will be stronger and continue as long as there are no solutions for the demands, which are the reasons behind the protests. As Iraqis mark the one-year anniversary of the October protests, demonstrators have vowed to keep the protests going unless their demands of a peaceful and prosperous homeland are met. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Suhail Akram. If you have enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe. And if you have time to leave a review, we would really appreciate it. Thanks this week to Rinad Mansoor and Enos Jabbar. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison with additional assistance from Mina Aldrubi and Liza Ayash.